Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus, where we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks for joining us. The word politics means the activities associated with the governance of a country or kingdom. In other words, it simply means the way people living in groups make decisions and live those decisions out as a community. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God, an invitation to life in community, which is often upside down to the kingdom of this world. I still remember the first time I actually got to vote. It happened here in Springfield. I became a U.S. citizen uh, during the summer, and then, of course, the voting comes in November. So that was the first chance I ever had to stand in a voting booth and vote for myself. Of course, I took it really seriously. I, I looked at all the issues we were going to be voting on as a, as a county and the, the, the politicians that were running that year, and I stepped into that booth, and I had to finally make a decision. And this morning, as we wrap up our series called The Politics of Jesus, Jesus says it's going to be a lot like that with him. If you haven't been with us or you're just joining us, for the last eight weeks, we've been watching and learning from the greatest teacher in history, the greatest message in history called the Sermon on the Mount. And as you notice, we called this series The Politics of Jesus because in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically lays out his platform for his kingdom. He says, this is what it's going to look like if you choose to vote for me, if you choose to follow me. Here's how I expect you to live. And today, as we come to the end of it, much like election day, he says to all of us, it's decision time. It's decision time. The first class I ever took in seminary on preaching, the very first thing we're taught as preachers is that the two questions you should always ask when you're teaching or preaching is, what do I want my audience to know and what do I want them to do? You see, good teaching always explains things clearly, but then it prompts people to action prompts people to start a new pattern in their life and end an old pattern, to turn away from something or to turn towards something. And today, Jesus is going to bring the entire Sermon on the Mount home by calling us to action. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with a call to action. For Jesus, just like any good teacher, it's not enough for us just to know some things. There comes a point when we have to do something about what we know. Now, up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught us quite a few things that he wants us to know about himself and about the kingdom. I mean, that's really what the last eight weeks were all about. He wants us to know what living the life of his follower means for us. On the back of your notes, I kind of summarized best I could uh, where we've been. But let me just remind you of some of the things he's taught us that he wants us to know. He wants us to know that his father's kingdom is different than any other kingdom we see in the world around us. His Father's kingdom values things that the world doesn't necessarily value. While the world values things like power and control, the Father values things like humility. The world values those who are self-made and self-sufficient, but the Father values those who are poor in spirit, those who are completely reliant on Him. The world tends to look at the externals of a person, and we judge by that, but Jesus reminds us God looks at our heart. He knows what's really going on. And so when we practice our spiritual practices, we don't do that to impress others. We do that to grow closer to our heavenly father for that is what they are for. 
Jesus talked about how the world accepts things like hatred and divorce and lust and lying as natural, and yet he calls us to something better, to be advocates of love, of purity, of trustworthiness, of truth-telling, of forgiveness. The world tells us, store up as many earthly treasures as you can, because this life is all we have. But Jesus reminds us, no, store up treasures in heaven because there is a life waiting for us in all eternity. And then last week, as Jeff showed us, as his followers, yes, we're to be discerning. We're to judge between right and wrong, but be careful to let that turn into judgmentalism and condemnation. Throughout these eight weeks, Jesus has been saying, here's some things I want you to know about me and my kingdom. And he comes to the end of this whole Sermon on the Mount, and he says, so what are you going to do about it? You're standing in the voting booth right now. It's decision time. So let me invite you to take your Bible one more time. Turn this time to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 14 and then also 24 through 29. In fact, I already have verses 13 and 14 printed on your notes there so we can read them out loud together. Would you be willing to do that with me right now? It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Friends, in these two verses, which, as we're going to talk about, are not very popular today, Jesus offers us three distinct contrasts between what it would mean to choose him or to vote for him versus choosing anything else this world offers us. He's told us what he wants us to know, And now he tells us what he wants us to do. So first thing, if you're following on your notes, Jesus says right there, there are only two gates. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. In context, he's saying everything I've talked to you about in the Sermon on the Mount forms a narrow gate. And if you're going to choose to enter that gate, it's going to be difficult. Or you can choose to enter the wide gate, which is basically anything else. It's me or anything else. Now, this is offensive stuff today. Can we agree? People would rather be called anything else today than narrow. But Jesus isn't teaching here for audience approval. He looked right at the people at the end of his message, and he said, if you want in, if you want to join me in my kingdom, if you want to be made right with God, If you want to live the kingdom lifestyle, if you want to be with me, not only now, but forever, if you want the abundant life that I came to give you here on earth and in eternity, the only way for you to have that is to enter through the narrow gate. There's no other option. There's no third candidate. There are only two gates. Which one are you going to enter? Now, of course, the question is, well, what does he mean by this? What is the gate? How do we enter the gate? In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus becomes crystal clear about what he's talking about. I have this on your notes as well. Can we read this together? He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Near the end of the greatest sermon ever preached, without batting an eye, Jesus says, I am inviting all of you right now. I'm giving you an invitation to enter into my kingdom. This is the reason I have come. God in the flesh come to open the kingdom for you, but you must enter the kingdom through me and me alone. If you're following on your notes, he's saying there is only one way to God, and Jesus is it. He is the gate to the kingdom. Now, I can almost hear the groans and hisses of the people on the hillside right now, can't you? 
Can you still hear them today? People get angry when they hear this kind of stuff. I mean, if you want to kill a party real fast, just bring up in casual conversation, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. People don't want to hear that today. We want to hear about a wide gate to God. We want to hear that we can pick and choose between any religion, any belief system, choose any lifestyle we want, as long as, here's what American religion now believes, as long as in the end my good outweighs my bad, it will somehow work out for me. Friends, I don't know if there's ever been a time in human history in our culture that's been more opposed to narrow gate theology than today. It sounds so discriminatory, right? So politically incorrect. So intolerant, so judgmental, as Jeff talked about last week. I mean, if you're thinking about committing the worst crime possible, intolerance is it today. We believe live and let live. It's the modern religious creed. Whatever you do, whatever you say, don't do anything discriminatory. If I'm honest with you, there's times when I think myself, how could I make this less offensive to people? I mean, have you had conversations like this? Are you telling me Jesus is the only way to God? That millions of other people from other religions are wrong? Listen, even speaking this message, I'm being honest, isn't like fun for me. And I'm sure there will be people who are offended. I have to be honest with you and vulnerable with you. In these moments, in these kinds of passages, there's a part of me that wants to kind of back down a bit. And yet Jesus' words are crystal clear for us. Enter by the narrow gate. There's only one door. There's only one mediator between us and God, the author of Hebrews tells us. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the thing. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. You know, C.S. Lewis, I've said this before, once said, you must either believe Jesus says who he is, or he's a lunatic or a liar. Because his claims are just too great. His claim that I am God in the flesh, come for you so that you may have access to the Father now and forever in my kingdom. That's a crazy claim. So he's either a lunatic, or he's lying, or he really is who he says he is. He really is the gate to the kingdom of God. Now, as I talk about this, and as you talk about this with people God brings into your life, I want to remind you of something important. This is all about grace. Explain. Well, here's Jesus on the hillside. He's coming in for the close. He's been telling all the people about the kingdom. And he says, I'm inviting you, all of you, rich, Poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, male, female, young, old, slave, free, you're all welcome. All are welcome to my kingdom. And can I just say, among any other religion, this is the least narrow thing ever spoken. Everyone can come in, Jesus says, but to do that, you must enter the narrow gate. You must come to me, repent of your sins, acknowledge that I am God's son sent to die for you on a cross, raised again from the dead so that sin and death would forever be destroyed and then commit to making me the king, the Lord of your life. I am the gate and I have come for the very purpose in grace to usher you into my kingdom forever. That's anything but narrow. 
His kingdom is open for all. No other religion teaches grace like that. I want you to imagine, have you ever seen the TV show, The Price is Right? At the end of the show, there's the big winner, and they have a choice between door number one or door number two. Now, let's imagine for a minute you knew where the big prize was, that it was behind door number one, and you were given the chance to share that with that person. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's that person at the gym. Would you not want to tell them it's behind door number one? Jesus says it's behind door number one. Life eternal is through me. I am the prize. I am the gate. That may be the worst illustration I've ever come up with, but you may find that helpful. We know. He's clear. And it should change the way we interact with the people we know and love. The reason we proclaim a narrow gate gospel is not because we're better than anyone else. Please say amen to that. Lord, forgive us if we ever come across that way in this world. Now, the reason we share a narrow gate gospel, because it's the only gospel God has given us, and therefore it is the only gospel there is. There are two gates, but only one of them leads to God. But it is open to everyone. The second contrast Jesus gives in these verses is that there are only two ways, easy or hard. In the Greek, that word easy literally means a broad or spacious or roomy. There's plenty of room on this road. There are very few rules. There's no restrictions, no requirements. It's a road of permissiveness. It has no curbs. It has no boundaries. You can think whatever you want to think. You can live however you want to live. Travelers on this road simply follow their own desires wherever it may lead them because there really is no destination in mind. Life is the journey. Eat. Drink, for tomorrow we die. That's kind of the motto. Now contrast that with the hard way. The hard way, Jesus says, is narrow. Its boundaries are clearly marked on what we're to believe. That's why he's given us his word. Tells us how to live. Didn't we just talk about that for the last eight weeks? This way isn't always easy, though. In fact, if you're following, Jesus is absolutely upfront. Traveling his way is difficult He told us this in the very first words in the Sermon on the Mount. We call them the Beatitudes. Remember what he says in Matthew 5, verse 10? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you, there are going to be times, friends, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. It's going to mean going against the grain of the culture. You're going to face the jeers of the easy way people yelling to you, loosen up a little. Stop being so intolerant and judgmental. Jesus says, quite simply, if you're going to follow me, it's not always going to mean an easy life, but here is my promise to you. It is the best life. It is the abundant life, both here and now. When you think back in your life to some of your favorite teachers, who pops to your mind? Who pops in your mind? When I think back at my favorite teachers, and I've had a lot of them, The ones that pop in my mind are usually the hardest teachers I had. They were the best teachers I had. At the time, you know, when you're in high school, who wants a hard teacher? We always love substitute day, right? But I look back and I go, oh, I loved that person. Even though it was hard, 
I became a better person because of it. Friends, there's nothing cheap, nothing easy about following Jesus. Even though it's hard, though, it is worth it. He's worth it. His promises are worth it. And that leads to the third contrast Jesus gives, which is that there are only two destinations, destruction or life. Wide gate people tend to live life on the easy way. And at first, let's just be honest, even today, it looks so liberating and freeing and invited, inviting, so sophisticated, so flashy. But the ease is from Jesus himself. We talked about this story last fall, Luke 15, the prodigal son. Many of you know this story. A son goes to his father and says, I wish you were dead. Give me all of the money that I'm going to get when you do die so I can live the easy road life. And he does. He spends all his money on all the stuff that promises us happiness. And we're told in the middle of this, he comes to his senses. He realizes this life really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Friends, as a pastor, I've met with enough people to know that this is true. When we give ourselves to pursuing the things this world promises, it never actually fulfills the promises it gives us. I've met with way too many people who have ended up living destructive life patterns, destructive relationship patterns, destructive habits or addictions. And I'll bet there are dozens of people in this room right now who could testify to this. While it looks so free and liberating at first, it ends up destroying you. Whether in this life or Jesus is straight up honest in the life to come. Narrow gay people, on the other hand, enter the kingdom humbly. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you do it humbly, right? Remember the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter my kingdom until you recognize apart from me, you have and are nothing. Narrow gate people understand we live life according to biblical guidelines, and sometimes we're going to fall off the path, amen? But our guide in his grace is right there to put us back up again to help us. And as we walk this path, we get a reverse surprise. I sure hope you've experienced this. We experience in life in ways we've never knew existed before. We start feeling alive. Not by the things of this world, but what he's doing in our hearts. We feel alive spiritually and emotionally and relationally. We are actually experiencing what he said we would, the abundant life. Right now right here, but also he promises that that will continue on throughout eternity. The destination is worth the difficulty. Three summers ago, um, some friends and I did a ride. It's a pretty famous ride where you ride across Iowa in a week on a bike. And uh, this was pre-transplant for me. So I just got to tell you, one of the symptoms I had before I got my transplant was I had terrible cramps whenever I would exercise. So this was like a big deal for me. This was going to be hard. And I have to be honest, we got there first day, you ride about 70 miles and I was ready to quit. This stinks. I'm lying in my bed. I'm using as much Bengay that I can to try to keep these cramps from getting too bad. But I kept on. I pursued. And I have to tell you, we finally made it to our destination. Here's a picture of us. And it was worth it. I'm so glad that I pushed through because the destination and the road traveled was totally worth the hardship. In the end, it's worth it. 
Friends, it's amazing to me how very few people today live their lives without considering their end. We live for this moment because ignorance is bliss. I do that times too. But if you're following on your notes, Jesus says our current life determines our final destination. Those who enter through the narrow gate, who walk the difficult way, will discover that the abundant life is found both now and forever in him. And so, of course, the question becomes, how do we set our feet on this path? How do we walk towards that gate? In the last words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the answer. Let's read verse 24 out loud together there on our notes. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I'll continue. Verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I think most people even outside the church know the story of the house that was built on the rock and the house that was built on the sand. I have fond memories of flannel boards in Sunday school class talking about this very story right here. I think that most of us probably also understand Jesus is using a metaphor about houses to describe two people's spiritual lives. And the key to understanding this illustration, friends, is that the lives represented by these houses are exactly the same. At least they look exactly the same on the outside. Think about it. In our terms, they both have chimneys. They both have three bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms. They're both freshly painted. They have shutters on the windows. Their lawns are immaculate, so on and so forth. They look the exact same on the outside. And if they represent people, that means they look the exact same on the outside too. They attend the same church. They sing the same songs. They send their kids to the same schools. But one has been wise, we're told. And one has been a fool. The wise man has built his house on bedrock. The fool has built his life on sand. What's the point? Well, New Testament scholar Don Carson explains this better than I ever could. I have this on the screen if you'd like to follow along. The man who builds his house upon the shifting foundations is likened to the person who hears Jesus' words, but who does not put them into practice. The man who builds his house upon the rock is likened to the person who not only hears Jesus' words, but also puts them into practice. The difference between the two houses is therefore likened to the difference between obedience and disobedience. As James, Jesus' brother, so clearly writes in James 1 verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What does he say at the end there? Say it with me. Do what it says. You're on your notes. Walking the way of Jesus requires trust and obedience. Now, please never get the order wrong there. Remember the first beatitude. We've talked about this several weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Very first thing out of Jesus' mouth. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty apart from Jesus, that we cannot obey apart from Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when we do that, He will help us. He will help us to live the life he's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, if you're following, Jesus concludes his sermon by making it clear that the truths he has taught about himself in the kingdom 
are not merely to be heard, but must be acted on. Unless our lives are changed, evidenced by obedience, no salvation has occurred. And sadly, at the final judgment, what this story is really all about here, like Jeff talked about last week, Jesus will look at those who look so good on the outside but have nothing in the inside, have built their house on the sand and say to them, I never knew you. So here we are. We're in the voting booth. Do you know Jesus personally? Or do you just know the vocabulary? Do you have a personal relationship with him, or are you riding on your parents' coattails? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life, at least growing a little bit there? Can you see some of the Sermon on the Mount starting to take hold in the way that you live? Is Jesus alive for you? Do you love him more than anyone or anything else? Again, this is not about works righteousness. But faith without works is dead, he says. No good works means there was probably never faith in the first place. You see, James once again says, even demons believe in Jesus. But what they don't do is obey him. Jesus' invitation in the four Gospels, every time. I don't recall, somebody can correct me about this, but when you read through the Gospels and he invites somebody to his kingdom, he doesn't say, believe in me. What is his invitation? You can say it. What does he say? Follow me. That's very different, isn't it? Follow me. Do what I do. Live the way I live. I know you can't do that on your own, but I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to help you walk this path. Friends, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read the words that the crowd was amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught with one with authority. But that's all we know. And I think what that's saying, if you're following on your notes, there are a lot of people who admire Jesus, but few who actually follow him. We can be amazed, but it's a whole nother level to follow. So as we close this morning, as we close this series, Jesus has laid it all out. We live in a 31 flavor society. And he says, nope, there's only chocolate or vanilla. It's either me or anything else. This has been true in the whole word of God. It reminds me of Elijah in that famous story when the Israelites are turning their backs on God, begin worshiping another God. Elijah stands up in front of 200 prophets of this God named Baal. And here's what he says to the people of Israel. One more time, can we read these words together? Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's always been the choice with the Lord. The line in the sand is drawn. You must choose for yourself who or what you're going to build your life on. Friends, Jesus simply doesn't allow for us to admire him. He's not just a good spiritual teacher to be admired. He presents himself no other way than that he is king. I am king and Lord and if you want into the kingdom, you must come through me. There's no other way. What's it going to be? So if you're following, he lays it out. I, you, must choose for myself who or what I will follow. Have you? Have you decided that you will give your full obedience to this man? Have you committed yourself fully to him, even if you know the road isn't going to be easy at times? Are you hungering? 
and thirsting for his kingdom? Or do you just admire him? I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of an imagination exercise. I just want you to, if you want to close your eyes, go, you don't have to. Just want to imagine yourself right now on the hillside, Jesus finishing this words. We're told the whole crowd admired Jesus. But something happened in the heart of a few of the people there that went beyond admiration. And I wonder if this might be happening for some of you either online or here in this room as well. It's not something I can manufacture. It's only something he can do. Their hearts started pounding. Their minds started racing. And I don't know who wrote this. I've included this on the screen, but this really gets me. Something deep inside of them said, this is it. This is what I've been longing for my whole life without even knowing it, without being able to name it, to be cleansed and forgiven of all my sin and all that junk that is a part of my life, to know my heavenly father, to have a life free of worry, beyond fear, to not be a slave to sexual desire or unhealthy habits or the need for more and more money, but to be a part of God's cause to redeem the world, to have confidence beyond the grave, to not be afraid of death anymore. I have to have this. I would rather have what this man has and give up everything else in the world than to have everything the world could offer me and give up this man. Therefore, I will pay any price. I don't care. I will do whatever he wants me to do. I will go wherever he wants me to go. I will give whatever he says I ought to give. I will be whatever he says I should be. Today, I am leaving the crowd. As of today, I'm not just an admirer anymore. I will live as a fully devoted follower of this man, Jesus. Is that you? Are you ready to follow him and live the abundant life that he promises you can have? Let me ask you the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. Will I choose to follow Jesus and submit my life to him today? And whether you're watching online or you're here in the room right now, I'm gonna invite you, if you would, just bow your head, close your eyes if that helps you. I'm just going to give us a few moments here uh, to talk with God and then give you a chance to respond to his invitation to the kingdom. Now, I know a lot of you in this room, you've already committed your lives to following Jesus. But perhaps in the last eight weeks, as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been raising issues in your life where you've kind of fallen off the path. But that's what he's there for. He is our guide. He is our helper. So I'm just asking you through this time, to allow him to work in your heart. Where is he not the king? Fest your spiritual bankruptcy. You've tried and tried to be good, but you realize you can never be good enough. You've never repented, which just means turning from your own way and turning from God and wholly devoted your life to following Jesus did. So like Jesus, I want to give you a chance today to make that commitment if you want to. You can pray these words along with me if you so desire, if God is prompting you, if he's doing something in your heart, if you want to follow this man, this God. Jesus, I'm coming out of the crowd. I'm crossing the line from admirer to follower today. No more playing games. No more half-heartedness. I confess I have never fully devoted myself to following you and express that to you, but I'm doing that today. I'm drawing the line in the sand. I am building my life upon you, my rock, my king, my God. I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge my spiritual bankruptcy that apart from you and your grace, I have nothing, but now I receive that very grace and the forgiveness of sins as the gift you give to me. 
I commit my life to obeying you with your Holy Spirit's help who now lives inside of me and I walk through the gate and take up the abundant life you promised me now and forever. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, Jesus says, welcome to my kingdom, child. Come, follow me you will have the greatest adventure you can ever imagine. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.